Well, hello. I'm Harley, and this is Deadly Damsels, Women Who Kill, where I tell you a crazy story about a woman who decided to kill. In this case, today's story is about Mary Bell, who was a child when she murdered her first victim, dubbing her Britain's youngest murderer. Mary Bell was born on May 26th, 1957 in Corbridge, England, to a 17-year-old named Elizabeth, a.k.a. Betty Bell. So Betty was a well-known prostitute, so she would be spending most of her time in Glasgow, which was about an hour away from where they lived. And this left Mary's father, William, a.k.a. Billy Bell, to take care of her and her older sister most of the time. But Billy was a alcoholic and was very violent, I'm not sure if he abused them. I didn't say in the source material, but he was a violent person with a very lengthy criminal record for various crimes, including robbery. But even though Billy wasn't the ideal father, he actually stepped in when he really didn't have to because, see, Betty didn't know who the father of her daughters were. Billy and Betty got married when Mary was a baby, but even though she did have Billy and Betty... It was said by her aunt, Lisa McCricket, that Mary was a very unwanted child from the beginning. So Betty didn't want her. It's said that when she had Mary at the hospital, the doctors had like tried to give her over to her to let her hold her. And she said, quote, get that thing away from me, end quote. So, I mean, of course, like after you give birth, I, I know for me, I just wanted to hold my baby and it made it all worth it. But I have heard stories of other mothers who are like kind of resentful of the baby at the time because of how much pain they just had to go through. But that wasn't the case for Mary's mother. Betty was very abusive. See, from birth until her school years, Mary had suffered many injuries. And that was specifically when she was in the care of her mother, Betty. Like, one time when she was three years old, Betty had dropped her from a first floor window. (laughs) And I mean, I know this may not be a big fall, but it's still the fact that she's dropping her child from a window. It's just crazy to me. And then on another occasion, and this happened many times, Betty would give Mary like a sleeping aid to get her to sleep so Betty could be relieved of her motherly duties for a while. So all these things that were happening, this led Mary's family to believe that Betty was actually trying to hurt her or even, quote, I'm going to put some finger quotes around this, accidentally kill her. So when Mary was around seven years old, Mary had been sold to this woman who was said to be mentally unstable and couldn't have kids of her own. So it's like she came to Betty and Betty's like, oh, yeah, I could use the money. So then she gives her daughter to this woman for some money. Once the news of this was out, a family member had actually traveled to Newcastle where Mary was, retrieved her from this woman, and then took her back to Betty's house. It was after this that a lot of Betty's family members, including Lisa, would beg her to let them take care of Mary because obviously Betty didn't want to do it. But despite the family's pleas, Betty's like, nope, this is my daughter. I'm keeping her. And so the abuse continues. And by 1965, Betty had begun allowing and even encouraging her clients because remember, she's a prostitute. She had been letting these men sexually abuse Mary for extra money. So not only has Mary now been abused, neglected, now she's being exploited and sexually assaulted and sexually abused. 
So Mary's behavior is becoming increasingly worse. See, like, she had always exhibited bad and unusual behavior at school. But at this point, her behavior was becoming violent. To the point where she was fighting with kids in her class. And not just, like, hitting and scratching and stuff like, you know, normal kids might do. She was literally trying to suffocate and strangle her classmates. There was one incident where she had stuffed sand into one of her classmates' mouths in an attempt to block her windpipe and cause her to choke, essentially. So, I mean, this little girl survives, but thank God. But, like, how traumatizing it was for this little girl. Anyway, this behavior caused other kids to be scared of Mary, of course. I mean, I know if I was a child, I would not have wanted to cross paths with this little girl, as sad as that may seem. See, no one really wanted to be Mary's friend or even be around her, except this one girl who lived next to her for a lot of her life. Her name was Norma Joyce Bell. She was two years older than Mary, and they had become friends, obviously because they're, you know, so close in proximity. And even though they did share the same last name, they weren't related. So back to these attacks that are happening at school, they're actually not just limited to school days. On Saturday, May 11th, 1968, a three-year-old boy was found wandering on St. Margaret's Road in Scottsburg. It's said that he was kind of dazed and confused. He had a large bloody laceration on his head. And so, of course, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking, a three-year-old is wandering the streets and I, where are the parents? That's my question. Where are the parents? I know like back in these days, it was a different time and everything, but a three-year-old? So of course the police find him and he, they start questioning him. He goes on to say that he had been playing with Mary and Norma and that Mary had pushed him off an air raid shelter and this had caused him to fall. So the top of this shelter was about seven feet from the ground. So that is quite a fall. And so as this boy is talking to the police, Mary and Norma, they're out like still playing and they approach these three little girls that are playing together in a sand pit. Mary then goes on to try to strangle these three girls. She asks them, quote, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? End quote. She began squeezing one of the girl's throats until she was purple. And that's when Norma kind of came in. She's like, you need to let go. You're going to kill her. Instead of stopping, Mary reaches over and grabs one of the other girl's throats, too. So simultaneously, she's just squeezing these little girls' throats until they are purple. So both girls are purple and barely hanging on to life at this point. She lets go. The girls fall to the ground. And then she turns to the other little girl. And she begins to strangle her, too. And so... All three of these girls are just on the ground, purple, but thankfully, all three girls had survived. So that evening, of course, Mary and Norma are questioned about the incidents of that day, and Mary denied the little boy's claims that she had pushed him. She said that she had seen him fall off the shelter himself. Mm -hmm. Mary also denied any knowledge of the incident with the three girls at the sand pit. Norma, however, admitted to seeing Mary push the little boy and choke the girls. So, obviously, the police are kind of taking this seriously, but at the same time, due to Mary's age, they're like, okay, maybe there was just some fighting going on. So, they're like, here's your warning. If you do it again, you're going to be in trouble. And they let her go. And... (laughs) This, they should have done something because only 14 days later on May 25th, one day before Mary's 11th birthday, a four-year-old named Martin Brown was found unconscious in an upstairs bedroom of the two-story house that he had lived in. He was found on his back with his arms stretched above his head. He had specks of blood as well as foam coming from the corners of his mouth, but 
Other than that, there were no visible injuries to his body. Like, there was no cuts, bruises, scratches, none of that. He did, however, have some weird random gray fibers on his clothing that didn't come from anything in the home. So obviously the police were called and an officer named John Hall arrived on the scene and began um, CPR in attempts to save Martin's life. And while he's administering CPR, Norma and Mary both appear in the doorway and watch as he continues but fails to revive Martin. When Martin's mom sees the two girls in the house, she's like, you got to go. Like, you can't be here. There's stuff going on. But she never, like, thinks that these two girls have anything to do with her son's death. So she sends them away. And they go next door where Martin's aunt lives to inform her that something really bad had happened. So the next day, a postmortem exam of Martin's body had shown no signs of violence whatsoever. So his cause of death was stated as undetermined. Um, But the medical examiner was able to rule out the possibility that Martin had ingested poison. And this was the initial theory of the investigators is that he may have gotten a hold of something and um, ingested it. So this ruled this out at least. Later this same day after the postmortem exam results are out, it was Mary's birthday and Mary and Norma had broken into a nearby nursery. They had peeled tiles off the roof and gained access that way. And they wreaked absolute havoc on this nursery. They're destroying books, paperwork, flipping over furniture. They are going absolute savage in this nursery. And they also had left some handwritten notes in several rooms before escaping the nursery. And so the following day, the nursery staff, they call police. They're like, hey, like something happened here. You know, this shit's fucked up. So, um, so the police come and while they're investigating the scene, they had found four separate notes. One of the notes had read, quote, I murder so I may come back, end quote. And then another read, quote, we murdered Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard, end quote. So these notes actually just caused the police to think that this was just some childish prank that whoever wrote these notes didn't actually kill Martin. They were just trying to like cause a stir. So they simply just dismissed both the vandalism and the notes as some prank. So two days later on March 29th, only hours before Martin's funeral, Mary, Mary and Norma had been playing a game of chicken, which is basically just like truth or dare, but with only dares. And so... I guess Norma dares Mary to call Martin's mother. So Mary calls Martin's mother and she's like, hey, can I come see your son? And his mom's like, I'm sorry, but no, like he's passed away. And obviously like that is so wrong and on so many levels. That is just so not cool at all. Like, ugh. But anyway, so then Mary replied with, quote, oh, I know he's dead. I just want to see him in his coffin, end quote. So this little girl is just, she is something. She is really, really something. So now Mary has gotten away with attempting to murder several children and then strangling another to death. Like the complete disregard for Mary's behavior, the lack of of therapy that she probably could have benefited from. uh, I mean, she desperately needed help. And her not receiving this help led to the death of yet another young boy. Nearly one month after Martin's murder, a local three-year-old boy named Brian Howe had gone missing while playing in his yard with one of his siblings, the family dog, and, you guessed it, Mary and Norma. So after he goes missing, family and friends, of course, they band together and start searching for him. They search for literally hours, turning up nothing. 
Then, at approximately 11 p.m., they found him. His body was so badly concealed. I mean, someone, whoever had killed him, literally, like, tore a few chunks of grass out of the ground, like, you know, with a little bit of dirt and everything, and put them in little sections on his body. And it would have been hard to fathom that whoever tried to conceal this body was a grown adult. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, so his body is concealed in clumps of grass and weeds and was wedged between two rocks upon the Tin Lizzie. Okay, so the Tin Lizzie was basically just an open wasteland, and this was near the railroad tracks, and the neighbor kids had just come up with this name for it called the Tin Lizzie. I guess there was, like, probably some tin and aluminum and stuff just laying out there, so they had given it that nickname. By the time the police had arrived on the scene, cyanosis was evident on Brian's lips, and that just means there was like a bluing or purplish color on his lips. And by that alone, they had guessed that Brian had been lying there dead for approximately seven hours. At the scene, a broken pair of scissors were found by Brian's feet. They kind of had the initial assumption that maybe he had been stabbed with them, but the coroner would conclude that Brian died by strangulation. They believed the killer had plugged his nose with one hand while choking him with the other. He did have multiple puncture wounds to his legs, though, and some of his hair had been cut off and his genitals had been mutilated. That's heavy. That's very heavy. It was also stated that an attempt attempt had been made to carve the initial M into Brian's stomach. Gray and maroon fibers were discovered upon Brian's clothing and shoes. These fibers did not source from any clothing within the Howe household and had been transferred to the child by his killer or killers. The coroner also noted that there was not a very big amount of force used to kill Brian. So this led him to conclude that whoever killed Brian was also a child. So now they're getting on the right track. This case was huge. More than 100 detectives from across Northumberland were assigned to Brian's case. Within two days, nearly 1,200 children had been questioned by detectives. And two of those children were none other than Mary and Norma, who investigators had been told they were seen playing with Brian before he disappeared. So initially, both girls were contradicting each other in their stories. And they were said to be very evasive and defensive, but both girls agreed that neither of them had seen Brian after lunchtime the day that he had died. On August 3rd, Mary is brought back in to be questioned further. She had stated that she actually seen him with someone that day that was quite suspicious. She said she had seen an eight-year-old neighbor boy hitting Brian in the head. She said she saw the eight-year-old again later that day covered in grass and carrying a pair of scissors. She stated, quote, I saw him try to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them, end quote. Mary initially thought that these statements were going to confuse the officers if they had any suspicions of her, but little did she know. These detectives had gone to investigate this eight-year-old boy that she said she had seen that day, and he was actually at the airport with his family, and there were, you know, eyewitnesses and things to collaborate that. So... So the detective, specifically Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson, was now convinced that Mary was actually the killer. See, only the police had known about the broken scissors found at the crime scene. No one else had known about that. So Mary saying that had actually given herself away. They kept quiet about that, though, and let Mary go home because they needed more evidence. 
The next morning, the police get a call from Norma's parents who say their daughter wants to confess that she knows who murdered Brian. Detective Dobson is, of course, all over this because he, too, thinks he knows who murdered Brian. He immediately goes to visit Norma. He sits her down, and she tells him everything. So that day when Brian died, Mary had taken her to Tin Lizzie after murdering him and showed her his body. Mary told Norma exactly how she killed him and even demonstrated how she strangled Brian. She had bragged about carving her initial into his stomach with a razor blade, kind of like, you know, leaving behind, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Kind of like marking, marking her territory or something. I don't know. And this razor blade is eventually found hidden at the crime scene after Norma comes forward. In the early hours of August 5th, police arrive at Mary's home because now they need to talk to her. They have Norma's confession and they want to see what Mary has to say about this. She had become very defensive when confronted by the police and even claimed they were trying to brainwash her. Like, okay. They had collected clothing from both Norma and Mary's rooms, and they had planned to test them to see if they matched the fibers found on Brian's body. The gray fibers, mind you, the same exact ones found on Martin's body, turned out to be an exact match to a dress that Mary owned, while the maroon fibers perfectly matched a skirt that Norma owned. So, yeah, (laughs) they're both busted, I see. On August 7th, the day of Brian's funeral, Mary had stood outside of his house as they brought the coffin out. Detective Dobson was there as well, and he was kind of like watching Mary, just kind of seeing her reaction at the start of this funeral progression. And his exact thought was, quote, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one, end quote. And I don't think he was wrong. I really don't. So by 8 p.m., both Mary and Norma were formally charged for the murder of Brian. Both of the girls had really drastically different reactions to being charged. Mary laughed. She literally laughed. And she goes, quote, that's all right by me, end quote. And Norma, she cried, which would be, you know, the normal reaction, I believe. And she screamed at Mary and she said, quote, I'll pay you back for this, end quote. Once in custody, Mary gave the police a statement placing all the blame on Norma. So she's like, I didn't do it. I definitely didn't do it, but. Norma did. And she even said she saw Norma kill him, that she had been present during Brian's murder, but that she had nothing to do with it and Norma was the one that committed the crime. She had also admitted to breaking into the nursery with Norma and said all the notes found at the scene were written by Norma herself and that she had no hand in that either. Shortly after the arrest, both girls underwent psychological evaluations The results of these tests revealed that Norma was intellectually delayed and a submissive character, and she easily displayed emotion, and Mary didn't. She was a bright, intelligent girl, but she lacked empathy, and we see that in a lot of killers as well. The psychiatrist concluded that Mary was not suffering from a mental disorder, but instead from a psychopathic personality disorder. Basically, like I said, she has absolutely no empathy, no remorse for anything she's ever done. She's very manipulative, very violent, So Mary and Norma's trial for not only the murder of Brian, but for also the murder of Martin as well, began on December 5th, 1968. So due to Mary and Norma's ages, um, Mary was 11 and Norma was 13, so their right to anonymity had been waived. The media had gone crazy, literally posting these girls' ages, names, photos of them in the courtroom, posting them everywhere, 
full media coverage all the time throughout the whole entire trial. I mean, if anything, I feel like due to their ages, they should have been protected a little bit more. But I guess, I don't know. I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. During the trial, Norma's mother, Catherine, had testified, and she said that seven months prior to the murder of Brian, she and her husband discovered Mary trying to strangle Norma's younger sister, Susan. Norma's dad literally had to punch this little girl, had to punch Mary in the shoulder to get her to release her grip on little Susan. Like, this is crazy. A a grown man is having to use this kind of force to save his daughter's life from another little girl. It's crazy. This trial had lasted nine days and it was basically both Norma and Mary's defense teams just trying to plead their case to the jury while and saying neither one of these girls should be found guilty of the crimes. But somebody's got to pay for this. On December 17th, the jury retired deliberating for approximately three and a half hours before reaching a verdict. So due to Mary's age, her initial charge of murder is cleared, but then she is convicted of manslaughter for both Brian and Martin. And then she is sentenced to be imprisoned indefinitely. So life imprisonment at 11 years old. That's crazy. Norma, however, was acquitted of all charges. So she is found innocent. And again, the girls' reactions are completely different. This time, Norma is happy, and rightfully so. She's clapping her hands, and Mary began to cry. And not far behind her, her mother and grandmother and other family members were also crying too. So in November 1973, Mary was 16 years old, and she had applied for parole, but was denied. She wouldn't be released from prison until May of 1980 at the age of 23. She had served only 11 and a half years for the crimes she'd committed, which, I mean... I guess that's good because she was only 11 at the time. So 11 years as an 11-year-old, that's a long time. I mean, you think about when you're a child and a year goes by, it feels like a really long time. But as you get older, the years seem shorter. And that's why people say life's so short because the older you get, the shorter it seems. Even though it's not. I mean, it's still the same amount of time, but you know. So upon being released, she was placed into like a sort of protection program where she received a new identity. Of course, you know, she committed these crimes as a child. So now as an adult, she deserves to be given a second chance, I believe. She'd go on to give birth to a daughter of her own. And she was born on May 25th, 1984. This would be her only child throughout her whole life. Um, And this child knew absolutely nothing about Mary's past. That was until she was 14 years old and reporters had found Mary. And they had began questioning her about her crimes. Because, you know, everyone's just obsessed with true crime. But, I mean, but she's out of prison now. And she did her time. So I feel like she is entitled to her privacy. You know, really, honestly. But this invasion of privacy would lead Mary and her daughter to be placed into a safe house before they went in front of a judge where Mary asked for anonymity for not only herself, but for her daughter and then any generation that came after. So her daughter's daughter, her daughter's daughter's daughter, you know, you get my drift. The judge grants her request and to this day, Mary and her family are unknown to the public. Like their whereabouts are not known. And that's a good thing. Um, She hasn't committed any crimes since the ones that when she was a child and it's said that she has accepted all responsibility for what she did. She no longer denies the murders and freely admits that the abuse she suffered as a child 
does not excuse her actions. So that's good. Realizing that even though you went through this, it doesn't make this okay. I'm glad that there is a good resolution or ending to this story. Anyway, this is where our story ends. And I will have a new episode for you on Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Bye.